that's one of the joys I think of being a CEO is you know it gives you I think the space to listen more um, and perhaps do less and and you know it's a very hard it's been a hard skill for me to learn especially if you ask my family you know I'm a doing kind of person I'm a to-do list writer I want to do stuff and so I'm sort of always pulling back from saying we should do this and we should do that and let's fix this and and learning to sort of take a step back and just listen is a is a real pleasure but it's also a real challenge and something that I'm still learning to do mm-hmm. yeah and uh as a highly qualified coach, <laughs> one of the biggest training pieces and one of the, the largest things around supervised hours and working with other coaches as well is the skill of listening. Welcome to That's What She Said, the podcast for empowering women. My name is Lucienne Shakir and as a female empowerment specialist, I'm a woman who knows what it's like to lose their mind through a lacking of female sense of self and identity. My aim is to share stories from women around the world to help you see that you are not on your own. If you feel that you are lost in a sea of who am I, these collections of conversations are for you. Sit back and enjoy listening to this phenomenal collective of female voices in That's What She Said. In this episode, I interview Jodie Ginsberg. As my guest on the show, she was absolutely incredible, insightful. We had some technological disasters, which is why she will definitely be coming along to the next series. As CEO at Internews, she knows what it's like to be a woman at the very top of your game. And we talked about that truth and what that meant for her. And we talked about supporting media and journalists and holding those in positions of power to account. Her truth-seeking in her journey journalism was evident. She's traveled the world. She's been in some phenomenal places and I was absolutely delighted to have her on the podcast. So please do sit back, enjoy listening to Jodie Ginsberg on That's What She Said. Okay, today we are joined by the phenomenal, phenomenal Jodie Ginsberg, who is um, an exceptional champion of freedom of expression. Um, I have come across her very recently and I wish I'd have met her sooner. Jodie, welcome to That's What She Said. Um, It's a podcast with a bit of tongue in cheek, but actually quite serious in terms of giving voices to women and our history and our stories as well. So I'd love to welcome you today. And I just want to ask, how are you? Are you well? Are you happy getting through COVID? I am. Thank you so much for having me on. I love uh, love the title of the show. I'm a big office fan. <laughs> one of my one of my lockdown pleasures actually was revisiting all of the office episodes. So that's made me smile. I'm doing all right. I mean, it's been a year now that obviously I've been working from home. I joined into News Europe where I'm the chief executive, and I joined two days before we went into lockdown as a, an organisation and wow. haven't been back to the office since. So, I, you know, to be honest, that's a struggle some days to, to keep the energy going. Uh, I've been in the same 
bubble gum pink room in my house for a year. And sometimes that, you know, can send me a little bit crazy, but I'm, I'm, I'm doing all right. Brilliant. That's, that's really good to hear. Yeah, I think we're all going a bit stir crazy, aren't we with our with our four walls and hopefully there's some light at the end of the tunnel, what's been quite a dark time for many. Taking on a new role and then going virtual must be very tricky in terms of getting to know your team, etc. So do you feel like you've managed to integrate well now or do you need that that personal touch of being in the same room as those people you're working with? I do feel that I've been able to integrate well. And I think there's a couple of reasons for that. I think I tried from the outset to really set out what my values were and my expectations were, to be really clear with people who I was, uh, how I expected people to work and to be really honest about when I found things difficult. So I'm quite open about if I'm coming into a a meeting and I've had a a bit of a bad day or I'm finding something a struggle. And I think that was really important because I know that colleagues were really struggling. People had really different challenges. They had homeschooling challenges. They had loved ones who were sick with COVID and people were bringing all of that, if you like, to work, but we couldn't see their faces. And so I thought it was really important that from the get-go, I sort of established that it was okay not to be okay. And in a funny way, I think that helped then integrate because people saw um, who I was and what I stood for and therefore could kind of get where I was coming from. And I was really clear about what I wanted us to be doing as an organization. So weirdly, actually, I think being remote helped because you have to be much more explicit about what's going on, what you're thinking, what you want to see. Of course, it's a massive struggle not to be in person. I'm a real extrovert. I like to be with other people. I get energy from being with other people. And I do find that challenging. But actually, I think in many ways, this forced way of of thinking about work has been beneficial for us all. And it's also been leveling because what it's meant is you don't have an advantage by being the person that lives closest to, to London. You don't have an advantage by being the person who can always be in the office. It's meant we've had colleagues who work all over the world who are able to be on a, a completely equal playing field because we're all in the same situation. And actually, that's really getting us thinking about how we could work completely differently when things go back to sort of normal. <laughs> yes, what whatever that might mean. Um, yeah, you raise a really interesting point there around presenteeism and maybe we can come back to that because I think that's a really important conversation to have as women particularly who um, tend to end up being the caregivers, the care providers, and, and that has been seen during COVID. A lot of women have stepped away from their senior positions um, to, to come back into domesticity so to speak being able to take the kids to school etc and so um the world has had to kind of shift and change and bend to be able to support that and it's been really interesting so you mentioned um that you are now working with intern news as the the europe chief executive that's right um, and what would you say that this job role encompasses what does it stand for what do you stand for jody So Internews is a media development organization and we do a number of things. We train journalists, we provide media organizations with business advice, we try and make sure that people have support to be digitally secure across the world, but often in countries that 
have real challenges for freedom of expression. And we do it because we believe, and I believe, and this is something about me, that everyone should have access to trustworthy and information. Without it, we can't make the decisions that are vital for our lives. And uh, it's been fascinating to see that play out in real time over the past year. You know, I see it all the time. And as a free expression campaigner, I believe it to the tips of my toes. But we saw it in real time and in real life. People were taking... We're hearing rumours, seeing incorrect advice and taking risky health decisions based on poor information that they were receiving about how to tackle COVID. And, and without access to that information, people can genuinely be at risk of, of death. Um, so it's really important that we support media, that we support journalists, that we support people providing information so that you and I can live fulfilled lives, that we can make the decisions we, we, we want to, that we can question our politicians and hold them to account, that we can question business and hold business to account. And I think that's really what I stand for. I've, I wanted to be a journalist from a very, very, very young age. I once met um, a dinner lady from my old primary school and she said, do you still want to be case AD? And I must have been about 20 at this point. And I said, it's funny you should say that just joined Reuters news agency as a foreign correspondent and I'm a foreign correspondent. And I had no recollection of saying that, but I must have said it often enough that the dinner lady at my old primary school remembered. So I've always been interested in the power of stories and telling untold stories to make change. I spent many years as a journalist working as a foreign correspondent, and I really have seen how telling those kinds of stories can make change. You know, if you don't know what's happening, you know, if, if we don't know, for example, what's happening in India at the moment with COVID, how can we send help? How can we find ways to assist? If we don't know what's happening around the corner, let's say, let's say a road is flooding around the corner from you, how do you know what, what to do? So it's really important that we're telling stories. Uh, and so I spent many years doing that uh, and then moved from doing it as a, as a practice, as a journalist, into campaigning for it, you know, because it turns out I quite like arguing. <laughs> <laughs> You're a woman after my own heart. It's brilliant. I absolutely love that. Um, okay, so I've got lot. I've got so many questions that I that I would like to ask, and I suppose I'll just come to each one as it's pertinent in our conversation. Um, being a woman who likes to argue potentially a difficult woman, as um, some of us have been called. Um, how have attempts been made to silence what you say or what you want to say? And how do you overcome that? It's a big question. And if you don't want to answer it, I appreciate that. No, it is a big question. And I'm just thinking how to answer it really honestly, because I do feel that I'm actually very lucky. I come from a, a position where... I've been able, thanks to to my education and my, you know, I'm, I'm a white middle class woman. You know, I have enormous amounts of privilege that enables me to speak up in 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 ways that other people wouldn't necessarily be afforded that opportunity. So I want to sort of frame it like that to start with, mm -hmm. and also to say that I've also been lucky for, that for some reason I've managed to avoid quite a lot of the vitriol and the harassment that a lot of my colleagues face simply for being journalists or public figures online. I, I seem to manage to to tread a, a fine line where I don't 
currently find myself on the receiving end of tons and tons of online abuse. So in that sense, I'm very lucky. Look, until I was 18, I never really thought that there was any kind of restriction on what women could, you know, I went, I was brought up to think that um, women could say and do anything. And then I went to university and met a bunch of misogynists um, who thought that women were, should be decorative. Um, and, and the attempts to silence were much more around kind of denigrating your opinion or trying to uh, trying to show that perhaps what you were saying was invalid or mock it. And that's one of the things I think often women who speak up face, it's not necessarily that overt criticism. It's more the snide comment, the kind of belittling of your comment. The thing that I've experienced repeatedly in every stage of my career is the finding the thing that I've just said repeated by a man and then everybody agree with them thing. Mm -hmm. That's one of the, the ways I find myself most often sort of shut out of discussion is you probably experience this as well, right? You say something, you make a what you think is a really good point and everybody sort of carries on or nods. And then this, about three minutes later, often a man will say pretty much what you've just said, almost in exactly the same words. And everyone will say, that's a great idea. I don't want to single out a man's name just in case somebody feels persecuted, <laughs> but you know, that's a great idea. Male insert male name here. Yeah. Uh, and you think this is so inferior. I just said that. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's those sort of little ways of being talked over or talked down or having your ideas sort of taken away that I find quite, quite, um, depressing and demoralizing yeah yeah what a brilliant answer to a very difficult question actually um because I think it's something that we all face and and men are silenced too um however women especially especially in the boardroom I've noticed this very often um unless you have a champion in there who will recognize a male champion who will recognize when you're being talked over or go actually Jodie's just said that three minutes ago. Um, you can't. It's almost very. It's almost impossible to defend yourself because you sound like you're whining <laughs> because you're saying, "Well, hang on a second. I said that a minute ago." And and that's the other thing I think is is when you stick up for yourself or when you argue, you do get these labels like the whiny person, the angry lady, the difficult, the difficult woman label. Mm-hmm. And so I do think that thing you mentioned that that um, I think it was the trick that Obama's staffers used, wasn't it? That to to back one another up is really really important. And interestingly, Internews has a majority female leadership team. So currently, our entire executive is all women. We have a majority female leadership team on, on both in Europe and the US. And it's very interesting what that dynamic brings it's my first experience really of that mm-hmm. um and and that feels that feels really empowering when you talk to people about that mm-hmm. I can I can hear and see the passion with which you with which you speak and it is so rare to work with a predominantly female executive team so congratulations to you <laughs> And I hope you're enjoying it because I know that some of us would would love love to be in that position. Um, okay, so 
a freedom of, freedom of expression campaigner who's traveled the world as a foreign correspondent, um, you must have seen some things in, in your time so far. I would love to cast a bit of hope on, on all of this. And I'd love to ask you, what have you seen that has been great practice that has filled you with hope in terms of being able to talk about stuff that you've seen as you've traveled the world? Any experiences that you can share with us where you've gone, do you know what, this is an incredible story to tell? Oh, so many. I mean, so as you said, I used to run an organization called Index on Censorship, which campaigns on free expression. And the thing that I used to say all the time was, what inspired me to get out of bed every day and go to work was just the hope and the tenacity that was shown by people under the most extreme circumstances. So we had colleagues who were jailed, uh, had a, uh, um, somebody that we worked with, a guy called Nabil Khajab, who is a Bahraini human rights campaigner. And I will always, always remember this because he is so sort of fundamental to so many of the ways that I think about things now. I'd been at, at Index, I think, about four months, and he'd been in jail. And he came out of jail, and he was on his first sort of overseas trip um, from Bahrain, and he came to London, and he came to see us, and he said, you know, it was so great that, that you guys had supported me in the past, but I didn't really... Um, hear from many people when I was in jail and that made me feel isolated and coincidentally when he was with us in London another of his colleagues was jailed and he found the time and the energy to advocate for for this woman as well and he continued to be upbeat and he went back to Bahrain and was unfortunately jailed and yet every time I spoke to him he would call occasionally from from prison and he would he would be upbeat all of the time and there are so many of those examples amazing women journalists who uh, like Safa al-Ahmad who uh, reports on Saudi Arabia and Yemen despite the restrictions faced by by women um worked with inspiring campaigners uh, in Zimbabwe who again despite repeated threats of, of jail and harassment continue to go back day after day to argue for what they think is right and do it with a smile on their face you know and that just brought me such joy I was looking at a picture from one of our freedom of expression awards a few years ago when uh, we had a Yemeni graffiti artist come. He was an award winner and, and we managed to secure him a wall in Hackney where he could do his artwork. And he had me up a ladder spray painting. And I thought, you know, this is so far out of my comfort zone. And yet that's nothing. This guy is is encouraging people to, to produce protest art in a country that is suffering a horrific civil war. And that's that's what inspires me because... It is amazing what people can do, even in the most dire of circumstances. And and so it's not just bravery, it's it's courage, it's humility, and it's humour. And and that combination is really powerful, I think. Mm, incredible. Amazing. Um, okay, so in your position, 
what do you do to support emerging female talent? Do you do you work to address the balance in diversity as well? So ethnicity, race, etc. Do you have practices in your organisation or is this something that you're looking at? Um, what do you do to support that? So imbalance? at Internews, we've just launched a programme that we started last year called Belonging, Dignity and Justice, which is really looking at trying to identify ways that we can better support and nurture talent all through the organisation so that people feel that they can belong, that they can bring their whole selves to work. And not just that they can belong, but they can thrive, that they can come in and see themselves in the top job. That is key to me. I think a lot of when you look around my understanding is a lot of these kind of initiatives, which is a word I hate because I think it should just be practice. It should be practice, right? It shouldn't be an initiative. It should be your practice. Fail because it's a tick box exercise. You know, I've got to have a more diverse staff. We get in more diverse staff and we don't do the things that help people um, stay through. And that's, that is, I think, constant work. I've certainly not got this right um, I'm really conscious of it because I think a lot about the kind of the, the unwritten rules that people come into and face when they come into an organisation. Mm-hmm. So, you know, do we all have a kind of clothing that gives off a vibe that makes people feel excluded? Do we have kind of, do we talk about certain things that they don't talk about? Do we eat, you know, do we eat certain foods? Um, and... I remember one organisation I worked at, people sneered at one of the, you know, one of the interns because they had pot noodle, you know, well, and, and, that, and that kind of identified for me a real sort of classist mm. um, division that I hadn't spotted before. So I think paying attention to all of those things is really key. Um, I try and listen and look for those. But what I think is most important is you give people a space in which they feel comfortable to tell you what's wrong. Mm. You know, because that's the key thing. It can't be a, you know, we sit in a small little room in our ivory tower and we say, oh, people of this organisation, this is how we're all now going to do diversity and be inclusive. Because the only way you can properly be inclusive, I think, and diverse is to allow everybody to be able to to say to, to you as an organisation, this isn't working for me. Mm-hmm. How can How can you fix it so that, I feel that I can really be myself in this organisation. So creating those avenues for people to come. We've got uh, uh, an email address called Talk to the President where people can email directly the president of Internews. I talk about having an open door policy and saying to people, I genuinely, you know, if you're not getting what you need from your manager, that's my job. You know, my job is to make your job as easy as possible. So you can come to me, and people do. Not everybody because not that feels weird for some people. But if we can create that culture where people feel comfortable expressing concerns and worries, then I think we're going to go a long way. Hmm. Sounds like a great place to work. (laughs) I hope so. I'm I'm enjoying it anyway. Brilliant. Um, So obviously in the the circles in which I work, we've got organisations who are identifying female talent, who really want to support their female talent and address the imbalance. Um, and an argument I have that's 
that gets leveled at me is that I am being exclusive by only coaching or working with women in, in my private practice. And so um, it's fascinating to me because I've seen a gap there and I know that I can add some support in. And if if the balance then does level out, then we can look at where I, you know, put my services, you know, and having had a nervous breakdown 10 years ago and it all being around my identity and my sense of self as a woman, as a mother, as an ambitious career-driven female, um, I believed that it was women that I could inspire and work with and through that men as well. However, I say all of that, there are a lot of men who are championing now this drive for inclusion. And I'm seeing a lot more um, partnership in, in in that way of life. And I'm wondering around the world of what you know that I don't, where are you seeing around the world excellent practices of this inclusion going on? It's a really good question. And the answer to that is it's really patchy everywhere. And I don't think it's region or country specific. I think it's very much about individuals and organisations. Mm-hmm. Um, I think it's interesting that people sort of might respond to you by saying it's un- it's, it's unfair almost to, to target women. That For centuries, we've had an unfair scenario in which Frankly, there was already a quota system, but it was for men. You know, people recruited in their own image. They recruited people they knew, which also happened to be men. You know, the system was not fair before. So all of those people who sort of criticize and say quotas are wrong or identifying one group of people to support is is iniquitous. Ignore the fact that for the past, you know, two millennia, it's been an unfair system. And some of the only ways I think we're going to redress that balance is by specifically targeting those groups that have been traditionally marginalized and excluded. So I'd say go for it. If you want to focus on supporting women (laughs) um, who have often traditionally not been invited into the the top jobs of the C-suite, then that's that's great. Um, And women continue to face barriers that men just won't. You know, you talk about your your family. You know, I've had two kids uh, as well. You know, those those are just barriers going into hospital giving <laughs> just mm-hmm. barriers that you face that that men won't necessarily face so um where I see good practice is often where the or not often it, it's always where behavior matches uh, kind of the statement of intent so I, where I see the problem is I used to work in, um, I used to be a business journalist and quite a lot of businesses are very good at coming up with sort of these great value statements. You know, they'll often print them out and put them on their walls and their fancy marble offices. Uh, a value statement is no good at all unless you have the behaviours to match it. So if you say, we want you to have a work-life balance, although that's, you know, not a statement that I would necessarily say, I think that that has funny connotations but let's say agreed agreed yes let's say you you, that's your statement and then actually you perpetuate a culture in which everyone feels they have to work 24 7 in the office Mm. there's this huge mismatch and I think where I see the best uh companies succeeding or the best practice is where people match stated values with behaviors 
um, and really mean what they say when they say, you know, we want you to, we want you to feel that you can have a work-life balance. And and they actually back that up with behaviors that are, that are also shown by the bosses, right? So Mm -hmm. we can't tell people one thing and then ourselves do something else. So I really try hard to try and match those things as much as I can and hopefully have created uh, enough of a sense of trust amongst at least my my direct reports so that they feel that they can call me call me out when hmm. uh, I'm not living up to that. Mm, brilliant, absolutely brilliant. Um, so in a lot of the things that in the research that I was doing, a lot of the stuff that I was reading around your work, um, there's there's definitely an overarching theme of trustworthy information and finding trustworthy information in in the media today um previously in history we have had a a male voice that can write and is is educated now what we find is that information is readily accessible and available to so many more people so it must be such a difficult job actually working out what is a trustworthy piece of information and what isn't how do you even go about starting with that well for us as as consumers of news and information it's really hard and what we have found over very many years is people tend to trust the people closest to them they tend to trust we trust friends and family we often trust the news media or the organisations that we've grown up with. So if your parents read a particular newspaper or watch a particular um, channel, then you tend to trust that even if later in life you're sort of confronted with evidence that perhaps that wasn't as, as, as it should be. I think the real challenge is to ensure that we are giving people the tools to make those judgments. You know, how has this how has this piece of news been sourced? You know, if somebody says to you, Oh, by the way, I heard that if you drink bleach or cure, you know, it cures COVID, to to know that you should ask questions to understand where that information's come from. And if it's the it's the WHO, you know, if it's the World Health Organization or your GP saying saying certain information, it, it's considered more trustworthy than your mate next door, for example. And so giving people the tools to ask critical questions, to ask how we know things, what's the evidence, can I um, take that piece of information and compare it to another source of information, all those things are really, really key. But what we certainly know is the more we can invest in media outfits and um, civil society organisations that really understand local communities, the more successful we'll be. People tend to trust messages less when they're coming from sort of big um, central bodies, particularly in the current age where, where trust in politicians is so low, or even big you know, journalistic outfits, but they might trust their local news outfit more. Um, and so making sure that we're supporting those organisations is really, really key. But it's really important as well that we, we ask the important questions about what authority means. You know, mm-hmm. Do we tend to trust... Uh, a male voice uh, when they're saying something more than we might trust a female voice. Why is that? Do we tend to trust people with certain kinds of accents more than if we um, uh, than other kinds of accents? And and ask ourselves if we're making assumptions about the tone 
about the trustworthiness simply from the tone or the speaker rather than the, the content of what they're actually saying. But it's very hard because, you know, you, you must know this as a coach. We all make these assumptions very quickly about people, uh, you know, whether we like them, whether we trust them, all happens Mm-hmm. in milliseconds through a whole bunch of things that are non-verbal. Mm-hmm. Um, and how can we kind of trick our brain to, to put some of that, those perhaps biases aside and really listen to the actual content. And that that's one of the joys, I think, of being a CEO is, you know, it gives you, I think, the space to listen more um, and perhaps do less. And, and you know, I, it's a very hard... It's been a hard skill for me to learn, especially if you ask my family. You know, I'm a doing kind of person. I'm a to-do list writer. I want to do stuff. And so I'm sort of always pulling back from saying, we should do this and we should do that and let's fix this. And and learning to sort of take a step back and just listen is a, is a real pleasure, but it's also a real challenge and something that I'm still learning to do. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and... Uh... As a highly qualified coach, (laughs) one of the biggest training pieces and one of the the largest things around supervised hours and working with other coaches as well is the skill of listening. And um, it's interesting because I was talking about this this morning. We were talking about what's the best advice you've ever been given. And, And for me, it was definitely to learn to listen simply to yourself and to the people around you. And it's fascinating that you bring that up. Serendipity in that. I love well, it. I, I also think so, so the best piece of advice I've got, but I still don't, I can't remember who gave it to me or where I read this, but um, was about saying you're always busy. So I always used to respond to the question, how are you with, I'm very busy. Mm-hmm. And that sends two messages to the other person, right? It says, I'm very important. I must be important because I'm busy. Like my, my life is so important, which automatically sets up a barrier. But also it means you're living your whole life feeling like there's just so much happening. And I so and don't answer that question ever anymore with I'm busy. And somehow that's translated itself into a feeling that it's, you know, this is manageable. You know, the important things will float to the top. I don't, you know, <laughs> I can, it is manageable. I'm not in a perpetual state of busyness. And that actually, I think, is really helpful. Brilliant. Um, how have you experienced climbing the ladder? How would you describe your experience of moving up through the ranks? Has it been an enjoyable experience? Largely enjoyable. Mm-hmm. So I feel like I've been very lucky to have worked all the way through my career with male and female bosses, and, and certainly in the early years, all male bosses who have um, encouraged me and supported me. I mean, I applied for the job of bureau chief, London bureau chief at Reuters, when I was pregnant with my first child, and I got the job. So I went straight into that, which is a big step up, straight off maternity leave with my first child. massive um but I will forever be grateful to the team of people that that put me there and had that confidence that I could just do that job so uh, largely has been positive um I would say the thing that I found in more recent years is that um the, the obviously the further you get and the more senior roles you have it can be much lonelier you know if you're lucky when you're going through your early stages of your career, I was lucky enough to have sort of management training and leadership training and all of that kind of support. 
to tell you how to delegate and help advise you about how to build teams. And I was very lucky in that. I think it's a bit more, it's a, it can feel a lot more isolating when you're a chief executive because mm-hmm. it's much more than about you as a person and the, the kind of bringing yourself to the role rather than a bunch of structures that you might have learned through management training and that can be a bit scary and a bit lonely and there aren't as many people to talk to because you're the person at the end with the decision making you know the final decision making power and that can be a bit scary so but I, I found it a very positive um largely a very positive journey that's very good to hear. That's very good to hear. I've got some excellent quotes here um, from today's podcast, which uh, which are just phenomenal. The joys of being a CEO, listening more and doing less. Um, but the caveat of that, of course, is that it, it can, of course, be lonelier. Uh, and it can. It can be a lot lonelier. Um, so the support structures that you put in place are crucial. And as we as we kind of come to a close on on this podcast, and I'm so grateful to you, Jodie, for coming on. Um, it's been it's been truly wonderful to get to meet you and know you and hear another strong female voice. Uh, when it comes to identity and who you are, I like to really challenge this assumption of you are either a aspiring professional or a CEO or a whatever, or a mother or whatever. You are multifaceted. You are a human being. How would you describe yourself to those of us who are listening to you? Small, opinionated, (laughs) driven towards positive change. Brilliant. I love that. That's absolutely fantastic. Um, Okay, so uh, I would love to ask, I've got thousands of questions here, but we don't have the time, um, which is just so sad. Maybe we can have you on again in another series. That would be a joy, yes. That would be lovely. Thank you so much. Uh, You have been Jodie Ginsberg. I have been Lucien Shakir. And this has been That's What She Said. Thank you for joining us. I'm a fan of all my haters. Must be doing something right. I don't know about you, but I can't wait to dig a little deeper into Jodie's story. We had so much to talk about. I feel we only scratched the surface. She was an incredible guest and I look forward to her joining us again very soon. Let me know what you thought. Let me know how how this inspired you to seek out the truth. And I love hearing from those of you who are listening to these episodes who are being empowered and sharing stories, hearing stories from women who are living experiences that you have been living yourself. I hope you enjoyed the episode. Take care and I'll see you on the next That's What She Said. Thank you for joining us on another episode of That's What She Said. This is a phenomenal collective of female voices from around the world. And I'm sharing that to empower women to share our stories so that you know that you are not alone. I'm a woman who's gone through it all. Honestly, there is nothing you can tell me that I haven't heard before, either with my clients or through my own life journey. And we need to stop hiding behind the veneer of perfection. These stories are important and we need to share them loudly and proudly. And that's what we're doing on this 
series of That's What She Said. Thank you for joining us. I have been your host, Lucien Shakir, and it has been an absolute pleasure to spend my time with these phenomenal women. Mm-hmm.